Amen. All right. So I'm a Midtown. What's up? What's up? Hey, come on. Can we get to a little bit of energy in here this morning? I am so glad to be back. Glad to be back in the house. You know, that building in Midtown, I heard that 150 volunteers in 50 days. Back when Soma Midtown was in the art building, the first fundraising campaign that we have was a 50K in 50 days, uh, where we actually raised 80K, right, in order to get the new building and purchase the new building, which is an amazing time. So I pray for you all that God would use that same sort of campaign, that same sort of slogan in order to uh, bring the body together, rally the body together. I, I see, it's so cool being up here. I see so many families and people that uh, I love and cherish very much, very dearly. Um, Brandon married my wife and I, and um, it's so funny. Uh, we just got back from a wedding in Bloomington. We're two awesome members of our body. Got married, and it brings back sweet memories for us. You know, when we were getting married that day, and Brandon who officiated that wedding, and there's a core group of us there that were celebrating that started our faith journeys in this city right here in MCs that are in Midtown. There were so many of us that were a part of that original group. So the seeds that you all have planted and continue to plant here are tremendous. Tremendous. You all don't see the full impact of everything that happens, right? Only man can count the number of uh, seeds in a watermelon, but only God can know the number of seeds that come from that watermelon in total, totality. Uh, I don't want to give any teachers away, but I'm speaking on self-control today, and there's very few things. Speaking of this wedding, I know someone here, I think you were back and you were on the, in the wedding party. Shout out, right? There's very few things that uh, make uh, white folks lose self-control at a wedding, like Party in the USA, Sweet Caroline, and Hey Ya by Outkast. So I'm just saying. Um, I don't think I've introduced myself, but for those of you who don't know me, Dante Cook, first and foremost, I'm a sinner saved by grace from the moment that I believed, the husband to an amazing woman that serves our family and our community so well, uh, a father of three, 24-7, literally all hours of the night, a technology consultant by day, a high school head football coach by evening, and one of the elders and pastors for Soma Downtown. And I've been asked to take the baton from all the incredible preaching that's been happening here on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 16 through 25, where Paul lists nine traits of a supernaturally transformed heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this week when we dive into self-control, it's the last of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not going to be the last in this series, but it may be the most important because it's the one that enables all of the other traits to be actualized in our Christian lives and in our Christian community. But really quick before we dive in, before we dive in too deep, let me give you a few caveats about myself and my style. I tend to get very passionate. Um, I tend to get animated when I speak. I have a lot of fun up here. Uh, if you're a real follower and want a one, two, three checklist, like if you're taking notes, you're going to be really disappointed. I'm letting you know. I'm going to give you a lot of sound bites, a lot of stories, a lot of scripture, People have been known to get arthritis or paper cuts if you have a physical Bible from all the flipping that we tend to do when I get up and preach. Um, and my sermons have been known to run a little long, so I'm going to go practice a little bit of self-control today. But the message that I want to give you all is simple, and that's the message that we preach week in and week out. The image I want us to hold in our minds as we talk about self-control today comes from Matthew 3. And it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We know very little about Jesus up until this point other than that he missed the bus, he missed the Uber out of town, right, when he was in the, in the, in the temple. Mom said, Jesus, where are you at? He's like, did you not know that I was here? Come on, man. Any parents who've ever lost a kid know that that's a terrifying thing. 
right? But he hadn't performed a miracle. He hadn't humbled himself to endure the wrath of death on a cross. He hadn't revealed himself as the Son of God coming down to earth to rescue us. But still, God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And I want to say that this morning because when we hear self-control, our English definitions and our cultural understandings immediately cause us to think of self-discipline, self-mastery, stoicism, a works-based righteousness. In the gospel of influential modern theologians like Jocko, right, uh, Jordan Peterson, David Goggins, uh, Ryan Holiday, the trait of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul's actually referring to would have been very differently for the Greeks that heard it in that time and for our modern perceptions. So both first century Jews and modern culture would sell us this vision of self-control of the self for the sake of the self. First century Greeks, for them, self-control was meant to be the foundational human virtue. Xenophon, a Socrates disciple, said this, shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundational virtue and first lay this foundation firmly in his soul. For who without this can learn any good practice or practice it worthily? Our modern version will tell us to master your mind, master your body, master your emotions, master your finances. Our modern culture also sells you this vision of a freedom from. Freedom from my eating desire, freedom from my horrible upbringing, bringing freedom from my lustful thoughts, freedom from my mental illness. But Paul uses the word to describe a freedom from. In verse 16, Paul talks about a freedom from the desires of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But a freedom from these things alone, as we think about self-control, is incomplete. One example that I have of this, because there's a lot of influence from, from Eastern religious philosophy in our culture right now, like Buddhism, that preaches a detachment, an isolation from your desires. Buddha, uh, if, if he was a person, was known to be a prince that had to renounce his throne, his heir to the throne, and so he goes off to the woods and he seeks enlightenment that way. And he achieves enlightenment by leaving the world behind. He left his wife and his children behind. That dude is not a great dude. He's a deadbeat dad, right? On the Near East side, right? We don't have good words for guys like him, right? But that's who we think about. That's what we think about when we think of self-control, a freedom from. But in Galatians 5.1, right surrounding this passage that we talk about, it says, Christ has set us free. That is a positional reality for us today, Christians. Let me repeat that. Christ has set us free. And those who the Son has set free are free? Are free? Appreciate y'all. But look back. What did he set us free from or for? It says, for freedom, if you flip to Galatians 5.1. But we need to make it a physical reality. Galatians 5.13, just a few verses later, it says, for you were called to freedom. My last question for us today is freedom for who? And Paul makes it very clear in this verse. It's not freedom for the sake of self. It's not self-mastery for so I want us to hold these two things today. You can wake up at 4.30, read all the books, adhere to all the keto diets, drink all the protein drinks, do all the CrossFit, run all the marathons, and take all the Alley Loves Peloton classes, which I do. Any Alley Love fans in the house? Sorry. All right, I went too far. All right? But if you're not receiving the power of self-control from the Spirit in freedom and for freedom and for the sake of others, you're missing the mark. 
As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, you will be running the race aimlessly as if you are not to receive the prize. We're going to talk about the prize today. What is that prize? And a sobering comment as well for Christians in the room, for religious folks. If you discipline yourself, read all the scriptures, develop a robust theology, commit yourself totally to prayer, and remove yourself from sin, but you aren't receiving the power of self-control from the Spirit in freedom for the sake of others, you're missing the mark. Let's pray before we jump into the sermon today. Lord, we thank you so much uh, to allow us to gather here today as one body, one family, across generations, across time, across the globe, Lord, to sing, to praise, to come together to remind ourselves the truths and the awesomeness of you and who you are in light of the brokenness that we experience every single day, Lord. I pray that this sermon may be a continuation of the beautiful seeds that have been planted in this Fruit of the Spirit series, Lord, and that we may continue, Lord, that it's not he who plants but, or he who waters, but God who brings the increase. Lord, I pray that you would bring the increase in these seeds today, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to be real with y'all. This message is really tough to preach. One, because Brandon gave me three days to get ready for it. Uh, and it's hard. One, I want to say that, like, as a guy that's come up here to preach, uh, this stuff is really hard. And for Brandon to have faithfully, and other folks as well, to have faithfully continued to serve for years and decades, uh, week after week, it's incredible. Only through the fruit of the Spirit and from the working and the, the power of the Holy Spirit can that be done. So I just want to say that. It's not easy. But if we're honest about this idea of self-control, we're a walking paradox, right? There may be things about us in our lives that look good from the outside. We have it all put together, but we know it's chaos. We know it's complete and utter chaos in other places in our lives. Anybody who has uh, young kids, before you like step out of the car, like there was a fight, there were some tears, some real tears that happened in there. We just had to sit in that for like five minutes before we went into the building. Utter and complete chaos. And my son, right, he's the best little boy. Everyone says that he's cute. I was telling Ringo, I was like, oh, you have cute kids, right? It's like, wait till you see him throw a temper tantrum and we'll see how cute he is at that moment, right? And I have a mini level of PTSD with him because at any moment I can get hit with a ball, with him, with a toy, with a fist, right? You just never know. Um, he leads our soccer league, the Tab and the Oaks and the Near East Side Alliance soccer league that we're in in tackles and takedowns, right? Unbelievable. I know I'm a football coach, but I'm like, come on, bro. We can't use your hands. We can't do that. But my guy can be completely out of control at times. So words of encouragement for parents raising young boys, at least is what we tell ourselves, like, you can't tame a stallion, but you can't, you can tame a stallion, but you can't make a donkey a horse, right? That's what we kind of tell ourselves, like, he's a little out of control. You can tame a stallion, you can't make a donkey a horse, right? But there's this war that's happening inside of all of us, this war between the important and ultimate things and the urgent and fleeting things. The biblical definition of self-control is having the supernatural ability through the Spirit to consistently choose the important and ultimate things over and above the urgent and fleeting things. The ultimate goals that we would find our pleasure and our satisfaction in serving God and serving others versus serving ourselves and our own desires. Show me what your pleasure is, and I'll show you where your treasure is. Come on, man. Show me where your pleasure is, and I'll show you where your treasure is. I rhyme all the time. You feel me? All right. I love doing that. I'm sorry. I go on like these little tangents, but I'm telling you, it just flows out. All right? But do we find our pleasure in God? And why is this struggle so hard? What are the internal influences? I want to unpack two things. 
What are the internal influences tugging at our soul? And then what are also the external cultural things tugging at our desires and our attention to pull us away from God, from the ultimate and important in light of the urgent and the fleeting? Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, if you will. Scroll with your thumbs, flip in your Bibles. Does anyone have a physical Bible in here? Hey, shout out. Shout out to the people in the back. All right, give me a thumbs up if we're there. Hard to tell. So many people, it's a lot, a lot more condensed than downtown or a lot more spread out. And Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, let like the rest of mankind. We all once lived in our passions. It's hardwired into us. Again, anyone that has kids, I'm done with the verse now, right? We all once lived out of our passions. It's hardwired into us. This word desire is the Greek word epithumia, which means commands of the flesh. Our flesh is literally commanding us. We're impulsive. I'll give us one quick example, because this literally happened to me the other day. You skip Netflix one night, you're doing good. I'm going to go to bed early so I can wake up with the kids. I can serve my wife. I'm not going to make a pot for myself. I can make pot for both of us. I'm serving really well. I don't eat until 12, you know what I'm saying, so I can get in that fasting state. Um... You know, you're feeling good about yourself as a parent because you start to put things on the low part of the fridge so the kids can, like, open the fridge and get things for themselves. But then it's like 9 o'clock after you put them down and things are happening. You hear beeping downstairs. You go downstairs to go close the fridge, and as soon as you walk past the fridge, you walk past the pantry. What's in the pantry? Double-stuffed, mega-stuffed Oreos. And in that moment, you've disciplined yourself all day. I've done everything right. I've hit every mark. I've managed so well, and it's like a Somali pirate from Captain Phillips pops up on your shoulders like, I'm the captain now, right? Sleeve and a half gone of Oreo cookies. I'm the captain now, right? So there's this physical thing that's inside of us that we can't help. We can't help but to act impulsively. That's the walking paradox that we talk about. James 1, 14 through 15 he says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. These things are already inside of us. These things are naturally hardwired into us. And that's just food. What about your finances? Every time Dogecoin goes up five cents, you all are hitting the buy button. No one's investing in Doge. I just made that up. When that Netflix countdown starts for the next episode, you can't resist. How did you know? Of course I want to watch the next one. Your browser history and screen time history will tell me more than your last confession at MC. If you're actually going to that, I'll make that joke out there. But when the Bible, okay, there is a physical thing in the flesh, but when the Bible refers to the flesh versus the spirit, it's not usually talking about a physical thing. I want to just make that very clear. It's referring to the bent of our whole person to want to be at the center 
of the whole universe. We get to make decisions about what's right or wrong. We want to be our own boss. We're taking center seat. We don't want to be under God. We want to become God. Let's look to another part in Scripture. Let's go way back to the beginning. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Let's go back. Flip. Flip. Bible literacy. Let's see how fast you can. This is the first book. So don't be looking in the, 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 the contents, right, the glossary to try to find it. This is the first book, okay? You can just go back to the beginning. Just so you're all there, because I know you're going to look. Genesis 3, Satan tempts Eve when he says, You surely will not die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. But hold up. Hold up. If you all look at, go to Genesis 1, back, uh, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. God and the Holy Spirit say, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. If you go a little bit further on, they were already in the image of God. They were already in the likeness of God. That was the lie. Self-control doesn't want us to be under God, but it wants us to become God. They were already like God. That wasn't something that was going to be new. The flesh says, in order to be in control of your life, there's always this, once you do this, then you'll have this. Then you'll be able to look at yourself in the mirror. Then you'll have made it. Then you'll be okay. It's an unquenchable chasm. It's an unquenchable, unpassable finish line that once you make it to one step, it just moves a little bit further along. John D. Rockefeller says, how much money does it take to make a man happy? What does he say back? Does anyone know this quote? Just one more dollar, right? One more dollar. There's never enough. There is this unquenchable physical and spiritual desire for us to want to be in the center, for, not, for us not to be like God, but for us to become our own God. We don't actually control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our life. And that Lord of our life is our desires or it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Can't be two ways about it. Jesus says in the Gospels, you can't serve two masters. He says God and money at that point but it's God and any other thing other than money that you want to put in that spot. It's making a temporary and urgent and fleeting thing the important and ultimate thing. I'm in a season of life where the demands of my time in my career as a parent, as a father, someone in our community are just nonstop, right? You just, you can't seem to meet all the demands that people have on you, right? And in my workplace, right, I built apps, I built automation, I've done the delegation thing, but there's more work coming in than I can ever seem to get done. And I could legit be online every night till 10 or 11 o'clock at night and it still wouldn't matter. Don't feel like I can make it up. But you know what? Here's a question that I've asked myself recently and that I want to pose to you all that I feel like the Spirit gave me for today. And does the person you could be in your career need to take a back seat for the person you need to be in your family, in your church, in your community? Should the person you could be in your career need to take a back seat to the person or the person that you need to be in your family, in church, in your community? You're the only you that God made because you're the only you that God needs. The unique gifting that you have fills a one-of-one one custom-sized hole that's only unique to that family part 
that community part and that church part, that body part, the important and ultimate things that we were designed for. In your job, I'm going to let you be, I'm going to be honest with you. You dime a dozen. I say, Dante, you're great. You're awesome, Dante. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Put out a job posting. Let people single sign on through their LinkedIn so the resume is automatically uploaded. I bet you'll find 10 people better than me if you keep the posting out there. Your job, those giftings that you have do not make you unique, but your flesh and your desire will tell you and compel you to the fleeting and urgent things versus the important things. Most of us don't have a chip on our shoulder. We have a snowflake. <laughs> Most of us don't have a chip on our shoulder. We have a snowflake reminding us that somehow we're, we're unique, special, superhuman, and irreplaceable at the areas that mean the absolute least. And since I'm on a little tangent, literally, because I've been thinking about this, I'm going to talk about two groups of people that don't get a lot of love from the pulpit generally, and that's mothers, and that's specifically like black mothers, right? Because this time of year, when you're talking about the Olympics or the NFL draft, you hear these incredible stories of these athletes, right? Credit women. Quiddy Pay, is that the guy's name? Homie for the Colts, they just drafted in the first round? Is that the guy's name? Any Colts fans in the house? And when the ESPN covers his story, they don't like get a lot of shots of him in like the weight room, right? They're talking about his mother coming from a war torn country in Africa. And so, literally, behind all of these athletes, what amazes us is. They highlight the mentor or the mother. And unfortunately, for circumstances like there not being enough black men, and I'm going to call us out here, who want to be fathers, who want to be leaders in their own home, these mothers have to sacrifice and go to great lengths practicing amazing self-sacrifice and self-control so that their kids can make it to every practice, so that they can have food on the table. I'm working two and three jobs. I'm doing everything that I need to do to make sure that you have enough I want to give a shout out to all the mothers. I know that it was just Mother's Day, but if I actually would have used the slides here, I would have put the Kevin Durant, you the real MVP meme up here, just so you all can see. But I want you to say, I want to say thankful, thank you to that. And why do we care about that? Why do we care about that story about Quiddy Pay's mom? Because there's some desire in us that realizes that the desire of seeking for self is ultimately not as good. It's not as good of a story as the mom who lays down her life so that her son could make it out the hood and get to the NFL. Can we get an amen? My goodness, I get hype about that, sorry. But moms are incredible, irreplaceable and amazing. But those are the internal forces. There's the physical forces, the impulsive desire that's in us that will turn into sin. There's a spiritual desire that started from the beginning in Genesis that says that we don't want to be like God, we want to become God. And then there's the external forces. There's everything out there. Second Timothy, Second Timothy 3, 3, this is a moment for our time. It talks about the end times, and it says, they will be unloving and unforgiving. People, he's talking about. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. Every time you turn on your TV, Every time you drive down the street, every time you walk into a bar downtown, you go into the garage and you see that there's this one person who cares more about themselves and is so blatant and out loud and ignorant about, you know, a mask and not, not considering the other people around them greater than themselves, you realize that there's a lot of truth to this verse. 
There's a lot of unforgiveness and un- unlovingness in our hearts that slanders others because of the, the person we voted for that has no self-control in what we post online, what we share online, what we consume. We hate what is good. John Tyson, a pastor of Church of NYC, said in his recent sermon on hedonism, quoting a, a guy named Alan Mann, he talks about Project Self. Society exists as a blank canvas for my own self-definition, expression, and enjoyment. I get to determine what's good. I get to determine what matters for me. Society exists to maximize my personal possibility. If anything gets in the way, I will rise up and call it oppression. Nothing sums this up more for me. Uh, any basketball fans in the house, uh, my brother-in-law was actually right here playing a game in the NCAA tournament. Big basketball family. Uh, there's five of them that are either professional or Division I you know, uh, uh, basketball players. You know, every time I come over, they're like, yo, Dante, hold this clipboard, keep stats, hold the water, and everything will be good, right? Thought I was a good athlete, so I got into my wife's family. I realize other words, but nothing sums this up more for me, this desire for self, this cultural phenomenon that's happening that seeks the self over everyone else, more than the transfer portal. So I'm going to read you a couple stats. We noticed a few things. Um, On the day that the transfer portal opened this past year, so the transfer portal and specifically now in this COVID year, allows people to transfer without repercussions of losing another year. 1,500 people were in the transfer portal the day that it opened. Just for reference, there are 4,500 NCAA Division I basketball players. So one out of every three people in the NCAA will be on another team wearing another jersey next year. You know why? Look at Baylor. 60% of their minutes played, and 70% of their points came from transfers. I will consider my own rights, success and fulfillment at the expense of others. I will do what I want. The name on the back of the jersey is more important than the organization on the front. That is the cultural phenomenon. And there's this sort of crowd movement that when one player transfers, they all DM each other. They get on Instagram, they talk with one another, and they team up and create these super teams. Hey, I, like the Warriors, everyone talks about that being a super team. Come on, everyone other than KD was homegrown. Can we admit that? Can y'all stop being haters for now? Everyone other than KD was homegrown, okay? And Steph had a bad ankle, and they said he wasn't going to be that good. You said he wasn't going to be that good, too. So don't buy the jersey and shoot a three from 50 feet anymore, Okay. We want to become God, and culture is calling us to pursue our own freedom, to pursue our own self-sovereignty at the expense of others. But I want to give us what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us. But God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, wants us to redeem, redirect, and repurpose our fleshly desires and replace them with the godly character to prioritize the important and ultimate over the urgent and fleeting. How do we do that? He wants us to hide the word in our hearts. He wants us to hide the word in our hearts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 23. This is an interesting verse, super interesting verse, an obscure verse. We're in the book of Acts right now as a church and as a body, and we're just getting to soak up what it means, Acts 2, uh, 2, 42 uh, through 46, and they sold all their possessions. We're doing a building campaign right now. 
So we all in on that verse, right? They go to the temple and pray every day at 3 p.m. They break bread with one another. We all into that verse right now because we need to raise some cash. We got a 50K in 50 days campaign up ourselves, right? Trying to do 100. Trying to do 100. Thanks, Brandon, for the inspiration. But Acts 23, verses 1, Paul, in this verse, is standing in front of the Sanhedrin to testify about why he's been preaching the gospel. They're hoping to uh, put him in prison enslave him. He's already been in bondage. He's already actually been arrested and enslaved at this point. But he opens up to these people like, hey, I've done no wrong. Up until this point, I have done nothing but good. If you read in those verses there. And then Ananias, there's a couple Ananiases, okay, just for if you want to do a deep study in Acts. Ananias, they got zapped. The other Ananias that was obedient a few chapters later, and this is a different Ananias if you want to read about this and understand. God, there's like five Ananiases in here. They're all different, okay? Different people. But the high priest ordered all of the people around him to slap him in the face. It says, strike him in the mouth. You know that verse? This is like required to graduate high school or that that part in Rush Hour 3 where there's a bunch of people standing around Chris Tucker and he gets kicked. He said, which one of y'all kicked me? Right? That's literally what I'm thinking about in this moment. But Paul, in his instinctiveness, his impulsiveness, his urgent and fleetingness goes off and said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and judge you. But then Paul comes under control of himself in the moment and quotes Exodus. If you go a couple verses down, he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What awesome ability, what awesome self-control that we see in that moment where he gets slapped He's done nothing wrong. He's up in front of the council and everything inside of him wanted to curse them, wanted to curse the people in power, wanted to curse all of the people that slapped him around him, right? If you slap me, right, in that moment, we might have been just having a brawl. We might have been having a brawl. Might have done a leg sweep and got all 80 out one time, right, like an action movie. But he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In that moment of the weakness of your flesh, For you to be tempted and to do the wrong thing initially, but have the wherewithal to come back into Scripture. Jesus, one of his first scenes coming out of public ministry after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, is tempted by the devil. And how did he reply back to the devil? Anyone shout out loud. This is a, how did he do it? How did he reply back? What did he quote? What did he quote? Scripture. Scripture. Every time that the Pharisees or other religious leaders or people wanted to trap him, in that moment, he's mad, he's angry, he's frustrated. Don't you see what I'm doing? Don't you see what's going on? Do you not know that I'm the Son of God that is going to come and endure wrath and death on the cross on your behalf? But he always quotes Scripture. In order for us to have biblical self-control, God wants us to have the word hidden in our hearts. Psalm 119 says that I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What are we doing to hide the word of God in our heart so that in that moment of impulsivity, of wanting the urgent and fleeting thing, that we come back to recognize God as the important and ultimate thing? That's how we combat the flesh. Second thing the Holy Spirit wants to give us He wants to give us an other orientation, to lose our lives for the sake of others. Luke 9, Christ is calling us to 
Verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their very self? He wants us to lose our lives in sake of other people. We need an other orientation. You and yourself at the center isn't going well if you're honest with yourself. Other people may praise you. You may be growing in your likeness, and how I quote likeness is how willing are other people going to like your content when you put it out online? My likeness, my favorability, my image, my positional status in society, but are you growing in Christ-likeness versus your self-likeness? 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might, have some, I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may attain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. If you're an athlete, one of uh, my wife's teammates, she was a much better athlete than me, really successful swimmer. One of her teammates, there's a lot of meets in Indianapolis. She's an Olympian. She's really accomplished. When she comes over, we're usually throwing down. We got snacks. We got fruit snacks, everything else for the kids, right? Nothing is healthy in our house at this point. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But when she comes up, right, she actually brings her own food with her. When we're downstairs partying, having a good time, she's napping, right? She's probably on her second or third practice that day, right? My father-in-law likes to say, you can't hoot like an owl and fly like an eagle, right? Athletes, when they train, they subject themselves, and not just one part, not just the training part, but all parts of their lives underneath of this self-control so that they win the prize. But where I'm going to flip this is what is the prize? Who is the prize? What model do we have to run this race successfully that Paul is talking about? To keep in front of our minds the important and ultimate things versus the urgent and fleeting things. Speaking of running a race, a few months ago, an incredible man by the name of Dick Hoyt passed away. Anybody who's a runner in that world knows who this man was. But for those who don't, he ran over 1,000 races, I think 1,200, with his son Rick Hoyt, who's a quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. They ran the Boston Marathon every year from 1980 through 2014, with their fastest time being in like two hours and 40 minutes. That's like a six and a half minute pace, which is absolutely insane. But in 1977, Rick Hoyt told his father, Dick Hoyt, that he wanted to participate in a five mile benefit for a lacrosse player who had been paralyzed in an accident. Far from being a long distance runner, Dick was like, all right, son, let's do it. And they had him in a wheelchair and they finished all five miles and they came next to last and Rick could barely walk after that first race. But that night when his son got home, he has a computer because he can't physically speak, and he typed, he said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not disabled. It feels like I'm not disabled. Those words changed everything for Dick Hoyt. He began training every day. He would run with a 95-pound bag of cement in a wheelchair through the park. He couldn't train with his son. His son weighed 94 pounds. He ran with a 95-pound bag of cement in the park every day. And when they wanted to start doing triathlons, he couldn't even swim. 
So what did he do? They sold their house and he moved to a lake so that he could swim every day and train to pull his son. This is an amazing picture of a father's love and the prize that he was after. And he took all areas of his life into self-control. He cooked all of his meals. He got up early. He trained early. He still had a job. He still had to take care of his son. He ran nonprofits. He did other things to promote the cause. But he came under self-control because of the joy that was set before him. And I'll end the plane with this verse here from Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was a runner. Jesus was a runner. Talks about him running, but Jesus ran to the cross. He humbled himself. He ran for the prize, which was the joy that was set before him. But what was that joy? What was the prize? Was it the glory of the Father? Was it for the praise of the Father? Talks about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit being in perfect community and perfect love and perfect harmony with one another. He already had those things. Angels, multitudes of angels constantly praising him all the time. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. What was the joy that was set before him? It wasn't those things. It was you and me. He ran for one purpose and one purpose only. So that we could substitute our perishable crown through his death and become imperishable. He didn't receive a crown or a wreath on his head like an Olympian. He received the crown of thorns. And like Rick Hoyt, the son who the father pushed the whole way, we receive a medal for a race that we didn't run. How does that not captivate our hearts, our imagination, so that we take our fleshly desires and surrender them to the Holy Spirit so that we can love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves? Self-control isn't about mastering yourself. It's about surrendering control to the master who will create a life much more beautiful than we can create for ourselves. Don't try to run the race yourself. You're going to fail. It's not about freedom from, although it is about freedom from our desires. It's also about a redirection, a repurposing of our desires for the sake of others. Let us run the race in front of us, bringing all things under self-control, our finances, our fitness, our friendship, our food, our family, our dreams, our desires, our wants, our wish lists, our bucket lists, our hit lists, all for the sake of loving God with all of our heart, souls, and minds, and strengths, and our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us the self-control through your Holy Spirit, and that through self-control, we would unlock love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all of these things that are a marking of a supernaturally transformed heart, Lord. I pray that you would continue to do surgery, that you would continue to repurpose 
and redirect our desires and our passions from ourselves for the sake of ourselves to you, the ultimate and most important prize, Lord. And for others, those who which you went to the cross to die for, that you bled for, that you were bludgeoned for, Lord, you were the prize. We were the prize that you came for, Lord, and we're grateful for that. Holy Spirit, implant in us that same desire. Implant in us that same heart. Implant in us that trait so that we may have the fruit of the Spirit. And like John 15 says, abide in the vine. It says, so that others may know that you are from me, Lord. I pray that we would have these things, not for ourselves, not for our own self-glorification, Lord, but for your glory and for the glory of those you've placed in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.